This morning, the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Dr. Luke continues to instruct us by the power of the Holy Spirit. This morning, the purpose of the plot. You know, as you read this particular section of the Gospel of Luke, it becomes very evident that the world is trying to get rid of Jesus. As I said two weeks ago, the world is still trying to get rid of Jesus. It appears that you can say pretty much any vile, disgusting, and despicable thing pretty much any time you want, but don't mention the name of the Lord, ever. You can't do it on television. You can't do it in the military. You surely can't do it in public school. God forbid that you name the name of Jesus. The plot is a thick plot, and it continues to this day. But there was a purpose at this day and time, and that purpose hasn't changed. It's to try and diminish, demean, destroy the work of the Lord. And it's become very apparent to me that much of the church is falling for the plot. The church has lost its vision of the holiness and the authority of Jesus Christ. The church is refusing to stand. The church is buying the same lies that have been told for 2,000 years. That Jesus is not the Messiah. That his words are not true. And I'm here to tell you this morning, it's going to get really costly for the church in America unless the church wakes up. Because the plot is still the same. It's to get you to deny the Lord. It's to get you to say his word isn't true. It's to get you to no longer trust your Bible. It's to get you to say there's some other way to heaven. It is to get you to that place to where you will be like the Pharisees and play church. And I prayed this morning as we open this serious passage of Scripture that we will get serious. Because time is short. The day is at hand. I don't know when the Lord's going to return. But I can tell you what's coming next once we finish this morning's message. Jesus is going to preach on the last days. By my way of thinking, what I know about the truth of God's word, I doubt those days are very far away. It's time to get serious. Would you pray with me? Father, grateful for this time this morning that we can open your word. Lord, pray that you would work in and through your word. Lord, that your word would be very much alive to us. That we would hear, that we would obey, that we would understand. Lord, give us a vision this morning of what you want to teach us. Pray that I would get out of the way. And that your spirit would speak to your church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 20, here in Luke 20. And remember that these things are all tied together. Sometimes people pull these little vignettes apart. But Jesus is speaking a continuous message. And he's doing it in earshot of the religious leadership and of the people. And so they watched him. And remember last time, we saw the ways of the wicked. And sent spies who pretended to be righteous. Those spies are still in the world today. And they come in a lot of different flavors. And some of them have really large churches. Some of them have hour-long television shows. 
with every special effect known to man. But they are spies seeking to destroy the very kingdom of God. We have a president who believes that his version of Christianity uh, somehow leads to heaven. Same things have been around for a long time. If you believe in the word of Jesus, then you take a quick look at this passage this morning with me. They pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words. Why? In order to deliver him to the power and to the authority of the governor. Can I tell you that there are people that are still coming to church for that very purpose? We've had a few of them here in this church recently. Coming to spy out and see what liberties it is. To see what it is that Pastor Jeff teaches from the pulpit. To determine whether it meets some politically correct set of goals, rules, and regulations. If you're here this morning and that's you, let me tell you, you're going to hear political incorrectness today. In Jesus' name. There is one name under heaven whereby men may be saved. And there is no other way. There is no competing truth. There is only one life. And then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly. Can you hear the pompous platitudes of flattery here? Oh, you're awesome. Calvary Chapel's amazing. And you do not show personal favoritism. You'd never do that. But teach the way of God in truth. And then comes the the jibe. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? From lofty platitudes to a direct assault. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Now, I don't know what intonation or vocal volume that the Lord used when he spoke those words, but I know how I would have said it. Why do you test me? Why? What are you looking for? Are you actually looking for the truth? Or are you looking for a lie? Are you looking to believe and receive Or are you looking to reject and disrespect? Show me the denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. But they did not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. This passage initially brings us to a place of having to look at our own lives. You know, I I have to be really honest. It drives me crazy. When I see Christians who start their little clubs well, we're just going to withdraw from society and we're not going to pay taxes and we're going to encourage other people to do the same. Jesus made it very clear. Paul echoed the very same things in a much stronger way in Romans chapter 13 that we have a moral and biblical obligation to pay taxes. They are for our benefit As much as they would have hated the Romans at that time, 
The Romans actually kept the peace. The Pax Romana was the rule of the land. The Romans also brought fresh water to the known world. They brought a road system that allowed for free enterprise and travel uh, between regions of the world. Not everything that Rome did was bad. Was Rome saved? No. Was the first pope someone you could look to to you know, model your life? Of course not. But government has its place. And Jesus was not going to be trapped by falling into the same dumb trap that an awful lot of Christians fall into. And then end up shaming the name of the Lord because they end up in prison for tax evasion. End up diminishing the character of Christ because we do exactly what he said not to do. Notice here that they sent spies. And they questioned the one thing that many of us look at. Do I like paying taxes? Absolutely not. Am I suggesting to you that you should pay more than your fair share? Absolutely not. It's why we have a free democracy wherein you can elect people who will cut your taxes instead of raise them. You don't like high taxes? Vote people in who won't raise the taxes. But you don't have the option to not pay taxes. It's wrong and it shames the name of the Lord. Jesus knew that. Jesus also knew that had he said anything different, every Christian in the region would have been thrown into prison for not paying taxes. They would have been jailed. They would have been murdered. There was enough on their heads already. They were already being spied out. And these guys acted the part, that word to feign or to watch, actually is the word hypocritus. It means to be a hypocrite, an actor. They were acting the part, oh, well, we really care what you think. No, you didn't care what we think. I didn't care what Jesus thinks. They wanted to hand him over to Rome and ensure that he'd be condemned to death. That's what they actually wanted. And so the tax you were talking about was the, this horrible, detestable poll tax. It was a tax that was put upon people as they registered, rem- remembering that that's why Mary and Joseph went to their birthplace of Bethlehem, was to be registered so they could be taxed. And so Jesus is actually saying, no, you render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God's. It is amazing, and he's going to go on and talk significantly in this passage of Scripture about money. And it's no mystical thing to me. Notice how they ask him, Teacher, we know you teach the truth. You see how he backs them into a corner? He says, okay, you say I teach the truth. We'll pay your stupid taxes, but you better honor the Lord. We'll render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but you render unto God the things that are God's. And he owns your life. Now where are they? I love the way he says, why do you test me? You see, if you'd have taken that denarii, the single coin, and if you'd have looked at it, most of those at that time on one side had Tiberius Caesar's face. Perhaps one of the most wicked men to ever sit on the throne. And on the other side was Pontifex Maximus, the supreme pontiff. And so Jesus is actually using their coin to illustrate the point. He says, you say this guy represents God. I'm telling you, you better render unto God the things that are God's. This other guy, yeah, maybe he controls the roads, the water, the type of coinage you use. But the other guy controls your life. The God whom you deny controls your life. 
And that, my friends, is why they were dumbfounded. Notice where this goes in verse 27, then some of the Sadducees, as John Corson always likes to remind us, they were Sadducees because they were sad, you see. <laughs> they were miserable individuals. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They, they were the intelligista of the day. They were too smart to believe in an afterlife. They were too brilliant to believe in eternal life. When you're dead, you're dead. And we're going to see that next. And then some of the Sadducees who denied that there is a resurrection came to him and asked. They're joining in. This was not a large party. This was the smallest party of those who ruled in Judaism. But they were very wealthy and very influential. Much like uh, you might say college professors in liberal universities today. Same type of power. Same ability to affect lots of people, though very few people actually hold their point of view. And in fact, on very many things, if the church would simply stand up and speak forth the word of God, we would have the majority. I still believe that our motto ought to be, in God we trust. Not let's do something else filthy. Think about it. Think about what you can say and what you cannot say in an institute of higher learning. Case after case after case after case of people being censured, losing their positions as teachers, professors in the realm of academia simply because they dare to believe that Darwinian evolution does not explain how we got here. Amen, it doesn't explain how we got here. It doesn't. There is no right-thinking scientist on the face of the earth who at the end of the day can put their hope and their trust that we got here by billions of years of time and random chance acting on a handful of chemical compositions somewhere in the universe finding one another in a massive, chaotic explosion known as the Big Bang. If you believe that, friend, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. You have to be absolutely nonsensical in the way you process information. Because chemicals do not organize themselves and they cannot store information. Period. Period. And yet... If you believe that perhaps there was a creator, that that more adequately explains the universe that we see, you can count on losing your tenure at most colleges in America. You see, the argument's still the same. The wise people, the few of them, make a lot of noise. And rather than people saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that his word is true. They step back and they stay silent. And consequently, we lose our ability to speak these things. And they say in verse 28, Teacher Moses wrote us, If a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children... His brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, in Jesus' name, we no longer do these things. This was an agrarian society. They're speaking about Leverite marriage. Uh, this is what Moses taught. It was so that families could continue to exist. If you didn't have children, your family line was pretty much doomed to die out. And so in this case, this is a very sad story. There was no aid to families with dependent children. There was no WIC. Uh, there was no EBT cards, no welfare, no NADA, no social construct or system to take care of people who were disadvantaged. And so at that day and time, the family very literally took upon themselves the, the burden of caring for immediate family including raising up offspring. 
And so here's the story. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. The second took her as wife, and she died childless. The third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died, and last of all the woman also. My goodness. This poor woman spent her whole life going to weddings and funerals. Sometimes I feel like I spend my whole life going to weddings and funerals. You talk about a novel, it'd probably star Elizabeth Taylor. My seven husbands or something, I don't know. I think she's actually on like number 10 or 12 or something. But you can kind of see how this particular image would play out in that day and time because it was the right thing to do. It was a culturally respected thing to do. This woman is going to die. There's no social net to catch her. We'll take care of her. If she doesn't have children, if she moves into her own place, she's going to be a beggar and die. And that's why they did it. Make no mistake about it. It was not some perverse Mormon theology, okay? It wasn't, you know, my sister wife's thing. It was this woman will die. Very strange for us and completely unnecessary today, but it was the way things were done then in the Jewish culture. After every single one of these husbands, there was a marriage followed by a funeral. And then the Sadducees, you can almost see them, they're chanting in the background. The Sadducees are getting ready for the punchline, sure that they were going to get this backward Nazarene. And therefore, in your silly, stupid resurrection, do you believe in Jesus? Whose wife does she become? For all seven had her. And that is a euphemism, and you know what it means. Every last one of them had been intimate with her. Seven of them. And they're over there ringing, we got him. We got him. They're doing a little dance, they're doing the uh-huh thing, you know, they're, all of that. They're like, we got gotcha. you. And the answer was blunt, it was bold, it was unexpected, because Jesus had lived in both worlds that they had talked about. He had been eternal before the foundation of the world, and he had been in this world and mortal. And he understood both. And he says to them, none of them. Not going to be anybody's. Wife in heaven. Now I will confess to you, there's a lot of folks that don't like this passage of Scripture because they bought the Hallmark Channel version of marriage. And by the way, I actually like the Hallmark Channel. At least you can watch it and you're probably not going to be offended very much. But it's this, well, you know, we'll just be married when we get to heaven and we'll just... Can I tell you, that's actually what the Muslims and the Mormons actually believe. It's not what Scripture teaches. Some of you wives are going, Hallelujah. <laughs> Some of you husbands are going, Praise the Lord. <laughs> but there's a reason for it. And it's a beautiful reason. Okay, It is a beautiful reason if you simply understand what Jesus is saying here. And so Jesus answers and says to them, the sons of this age, speaking of that day and that time, the sons of this age, those people who were alive in that day, marry and are given in marriage. Living people on planet earth get married. Okay? But those who are counted worthy to attain that age, he says, this age and then that age. He's speaking of two ages. An age that is and an age to come. He's speaking of that which is temporal and that which is eternal. Now, of course, we happen to know by being God's kids which age he's talking about. Amen? These guys were a little bit mystified at first, but he helps them understand it. 
He said those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now some people read that and they go, oh, I don't like that. I want to be married when I get there. I want my wife to be there or my husband to be there. And I want my kids to be my kids. Tough turkey tetrazzini. You don't get what you want. You get what God has planned. And I believe there's a tremendous reason for it. Because not every marriage is a happy marriage. Amen? Not every marriage produces the things that you're desiring for. Matter of fact, an awful lot of people live in a great deal of pain over the marriage failures. Some people have wonderful marriages. Connie and I have a wonderful marriage. I can't think of anybody I'd rather spend eternity with than her. The good news is, I'm going to spend eternity with her. But she will not be my wife as we think today. She will be one of the multitudes of the saints before the throne, just like me. And I will love her with a love that I have never been able to love her with on this earth. The love that God has for each of us, that kind of love, that is a love that transcends our understanding of earthly marriage. It is so far above what we understand on this earth, it is something that each of us should attain and aspire to. Furthermore, have you ever thought about what happens if there aren't exactly an even number of men and women in heaven? What do you got going on then? It's like, oh no! You got single people. God solves the whole thing by us being in the fullness of joy, the presence of Him. We will all be the bride of Christ. And in that sense, you're going to be married to King Jesus. All of us. Whether you're male or female. We will be as He and the Father are. Remember His high priestly prayer? I would that you are as my Father and I are one. Now, I don't know about you all, but in our marriage, there's a few things I haven't figured out about my wife yet. Because I'm a guy, and I'm stupid. And she's a lady, and she thinks differently than I do. It's how God works all these things out in eternity. You see, Mormons think there's celestial marriage and you poor ladies spend the rest of eternity on some planet pregnant. I'm not thinking that's heaven. Been to a few maternity wards thinking, no. Not a good idea. Muslims seem to think that the only thing that's worthy of heaven is having your own 72 virgins. I'm thinking, I'm a lousy husband to one wife. That isn't going to work either. And I'm not trying to be crass here. I'm trying to see that's how silly this whole argument is. When you get to heaven, you are going to be able to love as Jesus loves. It won't need to be sexual. It will be eternal. In a magnitude of greatness that you can neither understand nor can I explain. And so he says, wrong. Uh, she's not going to be anybody's wife will be gathered at exactly as Revelation 4 and 5 pictures. We're going to be gathered around the throne of God worshiping. Now, some people are, are bummed. Does that mean that there's not going to be time for trout fishing? No, because trout fishing's of God. Ah, hallelujah, praise you, Lord. I don't know. Are they going to have shopping malls in heaven? I have no idea. But I know it's beyond our imagining. I know that when we think about it, our puny little human minds, which are magnificent, by the way, are not capable of thinking in those terms. And so don't limit God by what you have here on this earth. Amen? A lot of people do that. Well, you know, I just want it to be like this. Then you don't get who God is if you think like that. Change your thinking. 
Whatever heaven is, it will beyond, be beyond your imagining. You are incapable of understanding how amazing it will be. So don't sell it short by, I won't be married. I won't be able to, you know, have intimate relationships with another person when I'm in heaven. That's what you're going, looking forward to in heaven. Bummer. I'm looking to teleporting. Time trend. I don't know. I want to go from one side of the galaxy to the other and see what's out there. I don't know what's up there. But I know it's beyond our understanding. So don't sell it short by making it human. It's not human. It's eternal. God invented it. And when you get there, you're going to be real glad you're home. Amen? You won't be going, gee, this isn't what I expected. I can't believe it's like this. Some Christians talk like that. You see, that's what rationalism gets you. That's what liberal theology gets you. That's what self-deception gets you. You start limiting God to what you can think. That's a bad deal. I was sitting there looking at my turkey going, only God could come up with something so ugly that tastes so good. (laughs) Think about it. You ever wondered about some of those things? That's the mind of God at work. Things you can't explain. You look out in the heavens. They declare His handiwork. Amen? Like this is Him. And so to illustrate this, He takes them back a little bit. You you see, they were were kind of stuck on this whole principle of of being married. He says, you know, guys, um, you remember Moses? You remember that guy? Here, here's, the, here's the whole deal. And so he begins to speak to them. Verse 37, notice what it says. And he's really reminding them of what Exodus chapter 3 tells us. But even Moses showed us in the burning bush, bush passage. That's not bush like in our president. That's a flaming bush. That the dead are raised. What? Yep, he did. When he called upon the Lord God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. When Moses received the Ten Commandments, When Moses got those words, Jacob had been dead for 198 years. Isaac had been dead for 225 years, and Abraham had been dead for 330 years. So the Sadducees are going, well, they're all dead. And it was Jesus who had them. Of course, well, yeah, they're all dead. You know, they're the patriarchs, of course. And Jesus was saying, oh, no, they're very much alive. They're eternally alive. And that is where we come into the picture. Because every person who has ever lived is eternally alive somewhere. One of two places. There's no such thing as neutral as far as your existence is concerned. There's no place where Scripture teaches about a place called purgatory, which is kind of like neutral. You know, you have to go there and work it out for a couple thousand years, or in my case, 400,000 years. I don't know how long it'd have to be in purgatory if it was real. It'd be a long time. There's no such place. You take your last breath, your Bible says, to be absent from this mortal body is to be present with the Lord. That's what happens to a Christian. And Jesus Himself says that to be absent from this mortal body without faith in Him is to be in eternal torment. Two places, that's it. Heaven or hell. Jesus taught that, not Jeff. 
Jeff happens to agree with Jesus, by the way. Some of the scribes, verse 39, answers and says to him, Teacher, you have spoken well, but they dare not question him anymore. You get the picture? He said, man, we keep going after Jesus. At the end of the day, he, he, he beats us each time. You see, the, the very patriarchs that they believed in were very much alive. And so Jesus now is going to go kind of on the offense, if you will. He's not going to listen to their questions anymore. He's going to speak to them. And so he gives them this picture in verse 42. And now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Gives him this incredible picture of the Messiah. These Portions of Scripture that when you begin to realize what they say, they point to exactly one person in all of human history. And his name is Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God the Father, born of the Virgin Mary. His life lived out exactly as Scripture declared it would be. So much so that those wonderful genealogies, you've probably all wondered, why do they have that? I mean, and Boaz we got, and you just go on and on. And Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, you know why? Because they tie Jesus to two very specific people, Adam and David. And a hell phone, whoever has that. <laughs> it's like a cell phone, only different. Turns on immediately when I'm trying to make a point. You, you see, Jesus, the coming Messiah, would sit on David's throne, but he'd also sit on God's throne. That was forbidden in Jewish culture. A priest could not be a king. So there had to be one person who was able to be both the high priest and the king simultaneously had to be tied back to the Aaronic lineage, had to be tied to the Davidic lineage, had to be able to say, I'm qualified to be priest, I'm qualified to be king. Had to fulfill those principles that we find there, uh, that Genesis chapter 14 gives us when this strange thing occurs between Abraham and this weird king whose name means the Prince of Peace the king of Salem, Melchizedek, who happened to both be priest and king, the only person ever in all of Scripture to be named as such, who mysteriously appears and then mysteriously disappears, having no lineage, Scripture says about him. So he's a picture of the coming Messiah. You see what Jesus was saying to him is, look, what have people been calling me? What did they announce when he came into Jerusalem? Son of David. He's saying, look, the guy standing before you is the son of David. Eligible to be king. The one standing before you is also known as the son of God. Eligible to be priest, high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 45, and then in the hearing of all the people, he says to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogue, and the best places at the feast, who devour widows' houses, or a pretense of making long prayers, for these will receive the greater condemnation. He now attacks them. Speaking to the people, he says, You've heard their arguments, and I've laid waste to each one of them. You've heard their goals, and I've told you they're not my goals. You see what they do. Look, there's the court of women right there. 
There's the court of Gentiles right there. There are the 13 trumpet stands into which you could throw your offerings. You see those? Watch what these guys do. Oh, to be heard. Oh, to be seen. And he exposes their pride, their arrogance. He says, look, I'm actually the King of kings and Lord of lords. These guys don't represent me. Because if they represented me, they'd care about the widow and the orphans. If they represented God, they would know that one sparrow that falls to the ground he cares about. How much more so we who were made in his image. And so he begins to condemn them openly. And of course, this seals his doom. He was the royal priest. He is the eternal priest. He fulfills exactly what David said in the 110th Psalm. Zero question of it. He was the one who appeared and then was taken away into glory. Amen? Mount of Transfiguration. You're going to see it. Exactly what God's Word said would happen to the Messiah happened to Jesus Christ. And to no other person has it ever happened. Not before, not since. They couldn't deny him. Their plot was caving in. And so Jesus sees this poor widow. And I want you to notice now as he basically just simply gives this as an analogy here in the first four verses of chapter 21. You see, if they really cared about the things God cared about, then they wouldn't have been taking advantage of the widow. They would have been honoring the widow. They wouldn't have been looking to trap Jesus with the story about the widow who'd been widowed seven times and whose husband she would be. They would have been taking care of her themselves. But oh no, not them. Verse 1 in chapter 21, And he looked, and as he looked up he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Now, denarii was the equivalent of a day's wages. So it would be the same as if you clocked in an eight-hour day or a ten-hour day and you earned... You know, you're 850 an hour times that, less the taxes. It would be as if someone handed you that every day. And so when you went to work in the field, they would give you a single denarii. And you would store that. It was a small silver coin. But if you were really poor, you didn't have a day's wages. You had a mite, which was the equivalent of about a hundredth of a day's wage. So for us today, we're we're talking a quarter. We're talking literally less than 25 cents. And this is all this woman has to her name. But it wouldn't have been enough to do anything, maybe get you a small bowl of milk, perhaps buy a dove at the money changer's table, Maybe a small packet of sticks to throw on the altar of incense. Perhaps. Depending on the exchange rate set by the high priest as he took advantage of all who came in. You see, this whole story had actually been about the widow. All of it. He's saying how you take care of God's people and where your heart is in giving directly indicates who's your Lord. Because if it's all about you, it's not about God. And he said to them in verse 3, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all of these, pointing to the Sanhedrin in general, he would have been in the colonnade area of the court of the Sanhedrin. He's standing underneath that large portico, some 300 feet long, 
and he's looking out from there directly beneath them would have been the court of the Gentiles and the court of women. And he would have been looking down on the court of women saying, look, this one poor widow, because those trumpet stands, they were boxes that had a trumpet-shaped mouth, and they stood at each column, 13 columns in the Sanhedrin, representing the totality of the Sanhedrin plus the high priest, and they would stand before those boxes with the little trumpet mouth on them, and what the Pharisees would do was gouge everybody in the court of the Gentiles, collect all of their money, and then they'd come by, and they'd have a little guy with a trumpet would go in front of them, and some cymbals behind them, and they'd clang their drums, and they'd toot their horn, and they'd make their coins smack the side of those metal barrels so that everyone would see, oh, look how much money I'm putting in. Notice what Jesus says. For all these, out of their abundance, have put offerings in for God. It didn't cost them a thing. It was nothing relative to their wealth. It surely wasn't a a biblical tithe, 10%. It was a pittance. But it made a lot of noise. And Jesus says, But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. It literally renders her life went into those boxes. Her very hope of living another day went into those boxes. And she had two coins. And I don't know what she was doing. She could have been standing between two of the boxes because they were marked. They were usually marked for the poor and for the sacrifices, for the Levites, for the priests. Each one of them had a sign on it, so to speak. And they were for different portions of the operation of the temple. And I can see her standing between those two boxes going, what do I do with my two mites? So torn because she herself lived in poverty, that she said, I don't know whether to put both of them into the box for the poor, or maybe to give one so somebody can be right with God. Had one coin gone in, she gave 50% of all she had. But both coins went in. She gave 100% of all she had. And even though it amounted to nothing on the grand scheme of things. And I share with you sometimes, I, I'm, I'm shocked. Because we'll, we'll see as the elders will count tithe, count your giving. There will literally be pennies in there. Because that's all somebody had. And God sees those pennies. And frankly, those pennies mean more than our faithless giving of 20 bucks here and 30 bucks there when He has given so richly to us. We walk in abundance. And we are supposed to give in abundance. Because the church then and the church now survives on the giving of God's people. Widows, orphans, our food ministry gets paid for because people faithfully give. We have Sunday school curriculum because people faithfully give. We have insurance on this building because people faithfully give. We can make the payment on the building because people faithfully give. And Jesus uses this as an illustration of how much we honor the Lord. He says, this woman has given everything. And these people who have given a ton of money, but they've done it with the wrong heart, 
have given nothing. And so, family, as you look at this passage, because Jesus is now going to go on and talk about the very last days. He is actually checking the hearts of those who did not understand. He's basically saying to us, make your choice. What are you going to hold back from God? What belongs to you? That's not just your money. It's your life. It's the sum and substance of everything that you are. Because he owns it all. That's what he paid for at the cross. He didn't pay for part of you. He didn't redeem just your toes. He didn't just redeem your wallet. He didn't just redeem your properties. He didn't just redeem your pantry. He redeemed you for eternal life. He paid the price you couldn't pay. And so he leaves them saying, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in her very life into the bucket. Not just her money, her time, her talents, everything she had. And I pray that we can say as much, that our lives go into the bucket, that we give all to the one who gave all for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you held nothing back. Lord, that this plot to kill you, Lord, was actually your plan. God, you willingly sent Jesus to this earth to die so that we might live. Lord, what can we say to that but to offer you our all? Lord, everything. May we, with the same dedication, give everything we have to the service of our King. We bless you. We praise you. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. Pray that you would cause us, Lord, to be with reckless abandon, your kids. All for you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.